I have a, I have a favorite um, ad campaign. Um, it's the Pure Michigan. Would you agree with me? Is it like the most amazing ad campaign you've ever seen? I love that. Makes me really glad I live here. There's another one that deserves honorable mention, and we need to go to the next slide to see it. Go ahead and pass that to this one. Did you guys recognize this? It's, yeah, right. It's called It's Not Complicated. And if you didn't know, it's, I think it's about AT&T's 4G wireless service. And the Pierpont family are Verizon people, but this is an, uh, an honorable mention ad campaign. You've got this uh, nice man here who asked these children this simple question. Go to the next slide there. And, and, they, and the answer, it's not complicated. Bigger is better than smaller. More is better than less. When it comes to the internet, faster is better than slower. Can I get a witness on that? Yeah. And this ad campaign, it's not complicated. One of the things that I just love about following Jesus when he's rightly understood, I love it that it simplifies my life. It simplifies my life. It orders my life. It kind of helps me to boil my life down to its essential elements. Jesus, when he asks us to follow him, his burden is light. He's not luring us into a a maze of impossible obligations. He's not inviting us into a game of religious twister, right? He's not handing us kind of a religious Rubik's Cube and saying, see if you can figure this out, and only the smart rats can figure that out. It's simple. And the text today that we're studying, which is Romans, if you don't mind, back my slides back up. There you go. To Romans 13. We'll just leave that there for a while. Verses 8 through 14 is one of those texts of the Bible. Jesus does this regularly. Paul does it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here, it's not complicated following Jesus Christ. I didn't say it's not hard. I just said it's not complicated. You're going to see this as we study Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. And, and the way to understand this, I think the most helpful way to understand it, is just to see this in two chunks. There are two really clear subjects, two different, different chunks of truth here. The first one, um, you can put a label on it if you want to. If you could just simply label the first chunk, this would be verses 8 through 10. If you read them carefully, there are a couple of things that surface. One is the law, but the major one is the word love. The word love. So keep that in mind. The first chunk in Romans chapter 11, sorry, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10 is love. And we'll explain that a little bit. The second chunk, if you will, from verses 11 through 14, the predominant theme of that is light. Keep those two things in mind. They'll be helpful to you no matter how complicated your life is or how puzzling it is. Love and light. After all this theological foundation is laid in the book of Romans, Paul, who's brilliant, boils it down to simple. Boils it down to a couple of single-syllable words that are never going to get old. They're never going to, and we'll never tire of them. And you notice that the context here is between the section about the state which is in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, really the the section there about the state and the section there about authority. It's sandwiched in between two sections. It's a parenthesis between commands to love your enemy in chapter 12 and verse 20, and and, and examples, we called that the house rules, remember? And then this chunk, this section here, which is about loving your neighbor and what happens when you love. 
So if you want, you can look at it like this. Under the mercy, and we say that we have the mercy of God based on Romans chapter 1 through 11, all of His mercies, I think the NIV actually says it that way, in the light of His mercies, or in the light of all these things that we know to be true, that we're saved by grace through faith alone, it's a gift of God, not of works, that we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit to help make us holy progressively, that we're embedded in the sovereign plan of God, while these are great mercies, in the light of these mercies, how should we live? And we're in this series, under the mercy. What does it look like to live in the light of God's mercy or under the mercy? And there are two things here. One is, under the mercy, love fulfills the law of God. It fulfills the commands of God. It fulfills the expectations of God. Under the mercy, love fulfills all of God's expectations for us. And, and this is in uh, a horizontal relationship, if you will, the, if you, you want to call it the second table of the law. It's common for people to talk about the Ten Commandments, like the first table of the law and the second table of the law. Have you ever heard that? In other words, the first table, if you notice, the first five commands have to do with our kind of vertical relationship with God. And the second of the five commands really have to do with our horizontal relationship with others. And that's an oversimplification, but it's true as far as it goes. And what what Paul's reversing that really here in these two chunks, the first one is about horizontal relationships, and the second one really kind of is talking about both horizontal and vertical relationships. But the first chunk is, under the mercy, love fulfills the law of God. It's interesting because uh, Paul likes to say that we're in debt. In, in, In Romans 13, verse 8, it says, Oh, no one, anything. Oh, no one, anything except to love one another. And this isn't the first time that Paul has talked about what we owe, that we have these perpetual debt obligations as people who live under the mercy. One, he said, under the mercy, according to chapter 1 and verse 14, you remember this, under the mercy, we're in debt to the world. I am a debtor to the world, to all the world, to make Christ known, to share the gospel. I'm in debt to everybody I know. I owe it to everybody I know to help them know the Jesus who saved me, who forgave me, who's preparing a place in heaven for me, who's praying for me. I owe it to everybody I know. That's a debt I owe. And I don't mind having that perpetual debt. I look around in my world. I think everybody I know, I owe it to them to nudge them one step closer to Jesus Christ today with my words, with my actions, with my smile, with my testimony, with my invitation Then under the mercy, Paul says in chapter 8 and verse 12, we're in debt to the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. That's in chapter 8 and verse 12. We have a debt to the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. We're indebted to Him. And it's a blessed and perpetual debt. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. He'll never go away, according to the Bible. God in me, that's amazing. That's amazing. Staggering to to try to imagine that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we receive at our salvation. We're baptized with the Holy Spirit into the family of God, into the body of Christ, and we possess the Holy Spirit. And He lives in us. If He's unhindered, He's gonna, that means that rivers of living water are going to flow out of our life. So we owe Him a debt to live a holy life. And we feel the sweet burden of that debt all the time. Yeah, I am, God lives in me. Of course I'm going to live a holy life. He's going to empower me to live a holy life. Under the mercy, we're in debt to authorities. There in chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, to pay our taxes, customs, fear, and honor. 
And we live in a very, very rebellious culture. We live in a time when people are pressing against authority. And it's to their own harm. It's to their own hurt. It's not wise. People who live under the mercy are in debt to everybody to give them the gospel. People who live under the mercy are in debt to the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. People that live under the mercy are in debt to all of our authorities. I'm even going to start stopping at the stop sign in our parking lot. I made up my mind this week. I was just driving. I always blow that stop sign. I'm like, that's a, I don't know whose idea that was. But I just, well, it's a great idea if there are children in the parking lot, right? If it's your kid. If it's my grandkid. Did I tell you I have a new grandchild? Just wanted to put that in there. John and Penny, is this uh, your first? Yeah. So we have little ones. Lucinda. Lucille. Lucille. I knew that. And you're going to call her Lucy? So give her a hand. She's here at church, but don't wake her up. And we got kids. We got a grandbaby this week, too. So, so we stop in the parking lot. That's why we do that. This week I'm in, and I'm thinking I'm going to go through that stop sign. because I. Always, <laughs> you told me about that one time, didn't you, Chris? Yeah. Y'all going to go through that parking lot. So I was doing that. I thought, then this passage came to my mind. Be subject to every ordinance of man. I'm like, well, okay. So now I'm, I'm a reformed man. Now that I've repented, I'm going to expect you guys to be doing some repenting today. So we're looking for some repentance today. All right? So just think about that. But, but that's the way. That, that I don't want to be a part of a, a culture that's shaking its fist in God's face. I wasn't disobedient to my mother and father. I wasn't disobedient. And I'm never going to dishonor my mother and father until they die. And even after they die, I'm still going to honor my mother and father. And my life is going to be good because of that. And, and, and I am uh, willingly obedient to the commands of Christ. They don't make me chafe. I don't mind having Christ command me. I'm eager for Christ to command me. Tell me what you want me to do. I'm all ears. Just give me my instructions. You're my king. You're my, you're my kind, loving, heavenly father. So a person that has their life going well is not a rebel against God's authority. And there you have it. We have a debt. And then there is this debt. That's in verse 8. We're under the mercy, we're in debt to, this is a good one, we're all in debt to everybody else to love them. We have a debt to pay to everybody in the world to love them. Our brother, see that? Oh, no one, anything except to love one another. And then Paul says this wonderfully shocking, all-inclusive, simplifying, wonderful thing. Because we all kind of feel the burden of guilt and shame and the law of God and the people that things that people have told us are part of the law of God because, you know, people have more laws than God does, right? And it says this, He who loves one another has fulfilled the law. That's wonderfully simplifying, isn't it? For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, that's all inclusive, right? Are summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see that? What if I told you today that I have the secret of overcoming the following problems in our society or in your life or in your home or in this church? Adultery, murder, theft, lying, and greed. Well, that would be quite a statement. What if I told you that I have the answer to adultery, murder, theft, lying, and greed? Do you realize that's what Paul just said? He gave the second table of the law, adultery, murder, theft, lying, and greed. And he said, if you can love, then you don't need to worry about adultery, murder, theft, lying, and greed because you won't do those things because love forces those things out. It's the expulsive power, the power of love. It's not complicated. So, 
Are you going to love? Because if you love, you will not commit adultery. If you love, you will not commit murder or be mean or unkind to people or or steal or lie or have temporal values or greed or love money. You won't because love forces those things out, that perpetual debt of love. And verse 10 says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love, he repeats what he says in verse 8, is the fulfillment of the law. Don't you love it that that passage is in your Bible? I just love that. I'm a simple guy. I got thousands and thousands of books and many, many opinions, you know, in my library. But the, the Bible's my favorite one of all of them. And the way it does this, it just says, yeah, I know that you're burdened. I know that you're stressed. I know that you're pressured. I know that you're guilty. I know you got a lot going on. Let me just make it easy for you. Love your neighbor as an expression of your love for God. And then your temptation to lust and adultery, that's going to get pushed out by love. And then your temptation to desire something you shouldn't have is going to get pushed out by love. And that temptation you have not to tell the truth is going to be pushed out by love. Love is a wonderfully powerful, simplifying effect. Under the mercy, love fulfills the law of God. Now, the local church, is, according to the Bible, is to be the context of this special kind of love. Now, I thought about this. I, I think about, you know, when I think church, I, I think about this building. And this is the most wonderful building I have ever preached, you know, as a pastor in. It's a wonderful building. Don't you agree? I wasn't here when it was built. I didn't pay a dime. I didn't do a thing. I think about that a lot. I come here, I occupy this wonderful sacred place and preach after we've sung like we did today. I'm like, wow, I got to be one of the most privileged people in the whole entire world. (laughs) Get to do that. Open the Bible every week, help people. I didn't contribute a thing to this church to build this building. I read a story a couple of weeks ago about an old fellow who remembered when the little local country church was built. He told the new pastor, he said, I was here when they laid the cornerstone of this building. We all gave God his acres of our farms. And every farm family all through that little valley gave God his acres. They said, we gave God his acres. We called them God's acres. And then everything that grew on those acres... It's above our regular giving. Everything that grew on those acres, we gave it to God. And when we had enough money, we built this building. This building was built because God got his acres. Well, I wasn't here, and I know that not all of you are farmers, but you gave to God, and you served and you labored. And God gave gifted men in the past who were uniquely and profoundly gifted to organize all that's happened here, to build this beautiful building on this wonderful place. There isn't a waking hour of my life and some of my sleeping hours that I don't think what a tremendous asset that we have and what wonderful placement and testimony and heritage and history that we cannot just enjoy that. But we must do everything we can to let as many people as we can know this place is going to be full one day soon. That's right. I believe that. And here's why. Because you're going to help. It's like There's so many people here that if everybody just got a friend today and brought them back next week, it'd be full next week. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I've heard pastors say that for years. Well, I know, I know. But we're actually going to go farther than that. We're going to actually organize teams about how to do that. And more than once in a year, more than twice, maybe, maybe two or three or maybe four, we'll see this building full. If we'll work together, and that's wonderful. And I'll tell you why. I'm not embarrassed to tell you that. Because I don't think you made a mistake when you built this building. 
I don't think you made a mistake when you gave your money to build this building in this place. I think you did a good thing. I think it was a good thing. I think God was in that. And God isn't about building buildings that we only have fill. Am I right about that? God isn't about that. It's not like there's a lack of people that need the Lord around here. It's not like there aren't single moms out there that could use a hand up in life. It's not like there aren't guys out there that don't think they can get free of the party life. It's not like there aren't people out there who aren't guilty. There are thousands and thousands of people, 4,000 an hour, that drive past this building and they need Jesus Christ. And He's going to return someday. And it will be too late for them. And Christians want to be up and going to fill this every single seat of the lower level and the balcony with people who need Jesus Christ. I believe that, and I think it's our job as leaders and pastors, deacons and leaders, and it's our job to figure out how to do that. And God, the Holy Spirit, will help us, of course, when he sees that kind of initiative. And that's the kind of vision that we ought to have, to invite thousands of people that hundreds and hundreds would come, and they would hear of Christ and have their lives changed, have their kids inspired to walk with the Lord, that we would have families unified, and, 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 and single people that are lonely would have a family that they could be with, that people that could love them and help them and people that have no idea how to fix a car. I, I was thinking about, we have a young man in our church. This is so cool. He's not a member yet. Nathan, wave, wave your hand over here. This is Nathan Harrier. Okay. He's not a member yet, but he already started a grow group. And that's that's kind of cool, right? He, he's going he's gonna to interview with the deacons today, but he's two weeks into a grow group already. <laughs> I don't mean he's in a grow group. He is also in a grow group, but he started his own grow group and he's joining the church <laughs> today. Is that awesome? He was raised in Illinois, he's a farm guy. Well, here's what I was thinking, Nathan. You asked me yesterday morning in our little grow group, you asked me, grow group of young men that are meeting together, you know, what we could do, you know, service and whatever. And I, I wasn't sure. But you love wrenching on cars, right? That's what you love doing. It's like golf to you and, and to some of your friends. And you know what you're doing. He works for Ford and he advises people at Ford who are professional car fixers when they get stuck. So I figure, so, here, so here's an idea. Think about this like when, when you have like single moms or, or widows in the church and their car isn't working right. And, and, and we help and kind of like every once in a while just send them your way, well, your guys might be able to just, like, hang a water pump on that widow's car for the glory of God. You see what I'm saying? That's what this passage is talking about. We have this building, and we are grateful for this building, and it was not a mistake to build this building, and it's not honoring to God for the building to sit half empty. Amen? Say amen. Come on, work with me here. It's no, it honors God to fill every seat. I'll show you in Luke 14. It's, it, God says, fill the house, go out of the highways, byways, compel them to come in, that my house may be full. And the, the, they numbered in the first church, and there were millions around the throne in the end. So we don't mind aggressively inviting people. We don't mind aggressively doing what we can humanly to build the church, this local church. And we know that it won't grow in a godly way, in a holy way, unless the Holy Spirit empowers that. Don't come and tell me that later. I know that. I'm a professional. I'm just saying, if we together, get together, and we start looking around our world, and we start, we'll fill this building. But I'm not here talking about the building. I said all that because that needed to be said. But the primary expression of the local church in the New Testament was not a building like ours. It was little clusters of Jesus people that are gathered together in twos and threes and fives and sixes and tens and down by the river and in the temple and from house to house. That's the way it was. And no church like ours has ever grown by conversion growth that didn't go back out in the streets 
and back out in the homes and back out in the public places and have little groups of meetings with people. And we've done that in our church. That's the idea here. The Roman church was not a single great brick and mortar edifice. That and We shouldn't see ourselves that way either. We should see ourselves as networks of relationships. It's in this context that we're meant to follow Jesus. The very Christian church is a movement of relationships started with the relationship in the Trinity, sustained by the relationship of 12 men gathered around Jesus, sent into the world to form Jesus' clusters everywhere they went. In other words... The way God designed for us to gather a multitude to worship him was to multiply little meetings of two or three gathered in his name. Uh, Ora Dugba family is here with us today, and they've been with us like five or six weeks. And I'm kind of proud of myself that I learned to say that name because that's different for me, right? And, and they're originally from Nigeria, so you've got to understand how cool this is. Somebody went to Africa years ago, had a little Jesus meeting there, and then a few others gathered. And now there's like, millions of vibrant Christians in Africa. Millions of them. Think about that. In China, millions of Christians in China. In India, and some of you have been there. P.B. Joseph is coming early next year. Has a, you know, I noticed on the internet, did you see that? He was talking about how when he was a boy, he grew up and he would play in his sticks and weeds outside of town on this little worthless hill. And now there's a beautiful glistening Bible college. Some of you all have been there and ministered there in that Bible college outside of that little village where he was raised. And they're training. He has a vision to train over 500 pastors. He's just a little on the way, but a vision to train 500 pastors to go out into villages all over India. There are millions of Christians in India, millions of Christians in South America. We don't want to get left behind. So these little Jesus clusters, that's just all the, that's the way it was. It's not a franchise. It's the only one book on it. It's called the Bible. And people just going out in the neighborhood, inviting people in. Hey, why don't we watch this little video together? Hey, why don't we talk about Jesus together? Hey, some of our friends are coming over to eat. Why don't you come on over and have barbecue? How many of you can grill out? Of course you can. How many of you can invite somebody else over for some of that? You have more food than you need. I'm looking at you. You know you do, right? Just invite somebody over, somebody else over to eat some of that food. It will be better for your health. Am I right? And who knows what would happen as a result of that. I think about Steve, I'm kind of off the rails here, but Steve Massengill uh, was, was used to the Lord to invite a family to our church years ago. And then they came to our church and they came to know the Lord. And today, and that's Nancy and Nick Walls, and they came to know the Lord here. And, and what today it was kind of like neat because I had a guest in my Get Acquainted class this morning that was a guest of Nancy. That's kind of like grandchildren almost, if you look at it like that. Yeah. Nancy says, I don't like that idea that way. No. But see, that's, that's just doing church, right? We're, we're inviting, we're loving, and people's lives get changed. And, and it was kind of fun in my class today. I just, I, you know, I make everybody cry. I just pass out handkerchiefs in my class. You come to my office, you're going to cry. I just reach over, get the handkerchiefs, I hand them out. If you have a heart, you're going to cry. That's the way it's going to happen. Wonderful. So there you have it. All of this team's task forces, Bible studies, Sunday school classes for the last 80 years and today. We're just refreshing our emphasis on these little groups. We call them sometimes grow groups that meet in homes and restaurants around barbecue grills and fireplaces to do the essence of what it takes to obey and fulfill the law of God, which is what? Love. Yes, love. You see, doesn't it just simplify everything? What do you want me to do, God? Love. How? Don't ask too many questions. Just go love. Right? You, you mean I could love by 
golfing with somebody. I could love by cross-stitching with somebody. I would never do this. You know, or, or I, could, I, could golf, you know, I could golf by inviting somebody to Outback and having a big steak. Yeah, yeah, you could love that way. You could, it, it, you could love by smiling. Some of you need to do that right now. A sister in our church, um, she has an a, a meal angel ministry. Did I say that right, CJ? Where are you? Where are you? Did, did she leave? She left church today? No, she's got to be here somewhere. Anyway, CJ and John Mooney, they're doing a meal angel ministry. So they go down in the church here. When, and this is kind of cool. If you work here, there's people cooking in the, in the, in the building. And they're making these meals to share with other people and bread and meals. And, and, if, and, then you, and, you know, and they'll say, these are good meals. And then I go, I doubt that. I highly, highly doubt that. They go, no, no, they're really good. And I go, how do I know this? I just, you know, I'm not going to be talking about something that I, I don't know if it's good at all. And now, like, after a while, they go, maybe you should try. I go, okay, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll try it. And then they bring in some to me. It's just great being a pastor on days like that. But what a wonderful ministry. They just want to, you know, bring a meal to somebody when they have a need. And I could go on and on. I should kind of keep moving. But, but the first chunk here is this love that fulfills the law. Now, the second chunk, and it's important that we talk about it, in verses 11 through 14, it turns a little bit. And this, this chunk, if you will, we could kind of give a name to that too, and that is under the mercy, not only love fulfills the law of God, but light dispels the Satan's darkness. Love fulfills God's law, light dispels Satan's darkness. And you can blank the screen, back it up. I'm going to show a little picture of a guy later, and that's all we'll worry about with this. Yeah. All right. So think, of, think about this. Um, I'm in uh, doing some personal Bible reading Friday morning over a breakfast, and in the back of my mind, I was thinking about. Um, people putting a chip in my hand. Did you read that on the internet? They're going to put a chip in your hand. It's going to happen soon. It's like, like my wife is like, not my hand. They can cut my head off first. That's what she says. And then um, back in my mind, I was thinking about the chip in my hand or Mark of the Beast, conspiracy theories, the Illuminati, big government, Ebola, Iraq, ISIS, high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> Genetically modified seeds, parody in college football. You gotta hate that, don't you? Cleaning my garage, checking my coolant before the first hard freeze, the age of my furnace and my roof, and trying to push all that stuff out of my mind to focus on my Bible reading. Isn't that the way it is with you? And then I read 1 Timothy. Why don't you take your Bible and look at 1 Timothy? It's a parallel to this, written by the same guy. This is written, Romans is written to a church. First Timothy is written to a young pastor. But I thought it was really interesting. It's a, it's, a, it's a reiteration, if you will. It's a repetition of the same idea that following Jesus is hard, but it's simple. And love is the heart of that. Notice this in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without... Oops, that's not the right one. That's second. First Timothy, as I, verse 3. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus that you may charge, and he gives a command, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, or give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. What's the command? I want them on the major doctrines of the Bible. I don't want them on, when do we get the chip in our hand? What what about high fructose cone syrup? What about the Illuminati? What about, you know, the conspiracy theories? I want you to just simply 
Give him this command. Stick to the main doctrines of a Bible and trust me with the, with the rest. That's what he's saying. And then he says, the purpose of the command, the one he just gave, is love. Get it? Right there again. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And if you stray from that, you've turned aside to idle talk. We want to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say or the things which they affirm. We know the law is good if, God, if it's used lawfully. He's primarily saying the same thing. I don't want you doing that whole thing about, it's not deep to be talking about conspiracy theories all the time or arguing about things that can never be answered. What's deep is when a person in the power of the Holy Spirit actually obeys the law of God and loves people in Christ's name. That's deep. That's as deep as it gets right there. You see, so that's what, what Paul is saying. Now the second, under the mercy, light dispels Satan's darkness. Things that should not be in a person's life. There are about five in clusters here. And you notice they are Spiritual slumber should not be in your life. Works of darkness should not be in your life. Revelry and drunkenness should not be in your life. Thanks, Sean, for your testimony today on that. Lewdness and lust should not be in your life. Strife and envy should not be in your life. It's there. Verse 11, do this knowing the time, and do this knowing the time that is now high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. This is simple, and it's really super important. Track with me on this. Things that should not be in a person's life, if they are under the mercy, they're displaced by putting on Christ. One, spiritual slumber. Wake up. I like to say that in case somebody's sleeping. Wake up is what Paul says. Awake out of sleep. It's immoral sometimes to not be aware of what's going on in the world. Wake up. Then he says, works of darkness should not be in your life. Behavior that's associated with darkness, the dominion of the devil. These are the people that say they're Christians, but they just keep flirting around, fooling around, horsing around with things of the world. And they can't seem to lose their taste for the things of the world. You've got to wonder if they're really saved at all. Because then when you come to know the Lord, Amber, if you don't mind, Amber told me when she came to know the Lord, and they're having some struggles in their home, but God is also doing some super wonderful things in their home. And so they had some heartaches in their home. Their dog died. They had some financial struggles. Like they had, you know, like we all do, they got marriage adjustments and everything. Amber said she had friends that invited her to smoke weed, friends that invited her to do wrong, friends that invited her to go drinking. She made up her mind, no, I don't want that in my life. I want Jesus in my life. I'm going to follow Jesus. I will tell you, you don't wake up after a night of following Jesus with a headache. You don't wake up after a night of following Jesus addicted to something bad. You wake up addicted to something good that you want to be addicted to your whole entire life. Amber, you made a good decision. And you stick with that. And some of you should join her even today. This is Brian Stevenson here. This is an interesting... I want to tell you the story of Brian Stevenson because I watched it on one of those TED Talks this week. Now, Brian was from a large family. And he had one of those old godly grandmothers. And she said, he said one day he was at his grandmother's house. And Brian was just, and by the way, he's a civil rights attorney. And he's a real sharp, really good guy that helps people that are, uh, that are being wrongfully uh, prosecuted to help them get the evidence that they need so they won't be wrongfully prosecuted. So he's doing a really honorable thing. But anyway... His grandmother saw him when he was a little boy across the room, and she was looking at him, and he noticed that she was looking at him. He looked back. She'd be looking at him. He looked back. She'd be looking at him. Finally, she 
She says, come over here. They go outside, and his grandmother has this little talk with him. She said, Brian, I have a lot of children, and I have a lot of grandchildren. There's something I want you to know, Brian. I've been watching you, and I want you to know that you are very special. You are very, very special. I want you to know that. I've been watching over all my grandkids, and I want you to know that you are very, very special. And then she said something that surprised him. She said, she leaned over closer. She said, Brian, I need you to make me a promise that you will never drink alcohol. I want you to promise. Will you promise me? He was kind of surprised. He said, okay, Grandma, I'll never drink alcohol. Not long after that, his grandmother died. And again, sometime later, as he's a little bit older, his older brother, sister, some friends were out in the woods and they had some beer. And his older brother said to him, hey, Brian, say, take one of these beers and drink it. And he was really slow about that. He looked and he wanted to please his older brother. And he wanted to have fun. And he wasn't even particularly against drinking. But he looked over there and he said, well, no thanks, no thank you. And then his brother said it again. Oh, come on, we're all doing it. You can do it too. And he says, no, I, I, I don't want to. And then his brother looked at him with a funny look and he says, oh, oh wait a minute. <laughs> Did grandma give you the speech? He said, what do you mean? You know, the your special speech. You know, she gave that speech to everybody, right? You're special. I've been watching and promise me you will never drink. He was just crushed, but he didn't drink. And to this day, he's never had a drop of alcohol. When I heard him say that, a guy who probably doesn't even know the Lord, I thought, that sounds like really good pastoral advice. Can I tell you something? You are special. I've been watching you. You have such potential for God. Will you promise me that you will never drink? Oh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Bible talks about Jesus made wine, blah, blah, blah. Okay, then let's just talk about drunk. Promise me you will never get drunk. Oh, and by the way, can I tell you how to never get drunk? Never, (laughs) just never drink. Because modern beer, liquor, and wine are so powerfully intoxicating and so freely distributed that most people who try to drink and not get drunk aren't very good at it. And most people who don't get drunk just to sit around like a commercial with their pinky stuck out like they're all high society in that. They do it because Jesus isn't enough for them. Because they haven't really been walking with the Lord. Because they're not really filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible contradicts the fullness of the Holy Spirit and drunk with wine. And it's better to be filled with the Holy Spirit Because when you're drunk with wine, your life is full of debauchery. That's what the Bible says. And so I'm just saying, look at this. It says it right here. This is the word of God. Let us walk. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the work of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in partying and drunkenness. Not in lewdness and lust. Not in strife and envy. That's the church sin right there. Strife and envy. Yeah? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. It was Augustine, way back in the history of the church, living a debauched life, drunkenness, immorality. He hears these children chanting, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. He happens to have this portion of the Word of God with him. He picks it up and reads these very words. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision 
provision for the flesh to fulfill its loss. And he was converted and millions have been helped because of the conversion, the prayers of his mother Monica and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. And he turned his back on revelry, turned his back on lewdness, turned his back on drunkenness. I am boldly calling you to turn your back on revelry, turn your back on lewdness, turn your back on drunkenness, turn your back on strife and envy. Stop the fussing and get going for God. Stop that gossip and get going for God. Stop the drunkenness and get going for God. Stop the immorality and the fooling around with the things that the world has that are only going to leave you with a stomachache in the morning. You are special to God. And He will lead you in a way you cannot imagine. That's what He said. These are things that should never be. And then there's a motivation. There's a motivation for love. And what is that? Because we owe a debt. And because it fulfills God's law. And the motivation for living the light life is because of of what? It's all through that passage, that chunk. What is it? It says, because the night is far spent and the day is at hand and the day of salvation is approaching and we don't know how much time we have. For some people, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay once called The World's Last Night. And C.S. Lewis, in this essay, The World's Last Night, says it is impossible to believe the Bible, it's impossible to believe in Christ, and not to believe there is a second coming of Christ. He says one day there will be the world's last night. For many, the lights will go out, and their world will never be the same again. And then they plunge into eternal darkness. But the Bible says there will be a dawn after the night. And those who know Christ, they awaken to a great radiance of Christ and of light in heaven forever. If you're in Christ... Your future is light. If you're not in Christ, your future is eternal darkness and damnation in hell forever in eternal conscious torment away from God. That should motivate us to live light-like lives. Sheldon Van Auken, in the book of the Severe Mercy, tells about a time. On a Saturday night, he was in the Navy and he was deployed to Hawaii. His wife was able to go with him. And so there they were on a Saturday night in Hawaii. It was December, but it felt like May. And all day long, they swam the beaches, and then they met with their friends for dinner. Jack and Aline were the name, names of their friends. They loved uh, classical music. And that night, they had dinner, and then they put on this classical music, Beethoven's Pathetique, kind of a mournful sort of music. As they were listening to this music that night, they dimmed the lights in the house, they lit candles after dinner, and they listened to this movement of music. And then Aline, it was Aline who said, that sounds like the funeral dirge of the world. And then they said, in the morning, maybe we'll go flying. And he said, well, I have obligations, and maybe we better not. And in the morning, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. He said he was high on a mountain overlooking Pearl Harbor, and he watched the Arizona take a torpedo and in the, in the, in the uh, heart of the ship, and he watched the ships going down. He said when the Arizona got hit, he saw a sailor in white, a white sailor outfit fly up like a rag doll, and he realized the world had changed forever. Jack went off on a bombing raid and never came back to Midway, and thousands and thousands of lives all around the world were lost. He said it felt to him like the world's last night. You might think that you can do whatever you want to do, go wherever you want to go, and ignore God's word and the commands of Christ. But you cannot, because life is short, and one day you will face God. 
One day you'll face the world's last night. And whether you wake up in darkness or light will depend on what you did with Jesus Christ. And today, I want you just to imagine what it would be like if you were to have a personal meeting with Jesus Christ. I mean, like, he had personal meetings with people on earth sometimes, like Nicodemus or the woman at the well. What if he had one with you? What if in the morning across that little table where you have your tea, Jesus just sat down with you? And he said to you, I have a plan for your life. I want to keep it simple. I know you're busy. I know you're frustrated. I know your pastor tells you all kinds of crazy things to do. But, but I'm Jesus. He's, I'm his employer. Here's what I want to tell you. I want you to love one another. And I want you to shine a light until I come back. What if Jesus got in the cab of your pickup truck and you went through a fall afternoon and you showed him some of your favorite places? Or maybe you and Jesus sit together in a deer stand and he were to say to you, I know you're frustrated because you'd like a nicer house or you have debt you wish you could pay off or the kids, maybe they're having some troubles and can I just make it easy for you? I know your life has taken some twists and turns. I know that sometimes you don't feel like you're making me happy. Can I just tell you what I'm going to empower you to do if you let me love others and love me, shine a light, and that's all? If he got in the cab of your pickup truck, and if he looked at you and he said, would you do that for the rest of your life for me? What would you tell him? Sean was back there getting ready to get baptized, and it always makes people nervous to get baptized, right? Just totally in front of hundreds of people. And I love what he said. Lee, did you catch that? He goes, I'm, I'm nervous about this, but it's the least I can do since Jesus died for me. <laughs> so if Jesus took a walk with you on a fall afternoon, and he said, I want to simplify your life. It's not complicated. Just love me. Shine a light. I'm going to come back soon. Are you in? The one who wrote this song was, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resist your holy war. You've loved and purchased me. I am yours forevermore. Isn't that good? He said, I I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice. I didn't know your love within. I had no taste for heaven's joys. But then your spirit gave me life and opened up your word to me. And through the gospel of your son, you've brought me endless hope and peace. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart, guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised. With my every thought and deed, O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. In a minute, uh, one of our deacons, Lee Widener, is going to come and pronounce a benediction. But right now, I thought it would be wonderful for you to sing that song. And I want to invite you, some of you forward. We don't do this every week, so jump at the chance. Some of you, you don't know that you know that you're born again. And you really ought to get saved. And you ought to let us show you how to be saved. And I just want to call you boldly to come and take my hand. And we'll show you how to be saved. Some of you, you really ought to be baptized like you saw today, but you've just put it up. For some reason, you've been putting it off. I think it would be awesome for you to come forward today. Take my hand and say, Pastor, I'm going to be baptized. And then some of you should unite with our church. This is a train that's going somewhere wonderful. And if I were you, I would want to be on it and not get off. And some of you say, well, I've been attending, but I haven't been a member. 
And I'm saying, well, why not? Why don't you just join up? If the Lord's moving on your heart to do that, I want you to come and take my hand. Tell me, okay? And then every once in a while in our churches, we sing these wonderful songs. People like to come and kneel at the altar here, the steps, and just pray, have a little private time with the Lord. So I'll give you some options that you can think about. Let's stand together as we sing this final song. Then Lee's going to come and pray.